Well, so what, what a joy to be here, Becky and I, to be here with you all and uh, see so many familiar faces. Um, we got a chance to visit with a lot of you yesterday, so it was a, what a joy to just catch up. And uh, you guys are dear to us. We pray for you often. Um, you're very precious uh, to us, and we pray for the work here. And it's, it's good to see people I don't know. This is good. Praise God. Uh, the Lord Jesus is building his church, isn't he? Amen. He's going to build it. And we believe that he sent you guys down here uh, because he has people he's going to save. So I, I have lots of stories to tell you about Angelo, uh, but, but I can't do that right now. We'd be here all morning. But um, uh, a lot of precious times together, a lot of difficult times together, uh, weeping and laughing. And, uh, but brother, you're a dear friend. Uh, it, it's been amazing to watch how God has made this man into a man of God, you know, and uh, so we're thankful for that. A fellow worker in the gospel, and love you, dear brother, and it's a joy to be here. Thank you for having me come. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. There, there are certain things that a church should be known for, things that distinguish the church, the very thing I think that characterizes this church. For example, we should desire to be a God-dependent church. We know that without God's help, we can do nothing. We can't accomplish anything. So we must depend on Him to accomplish His purposes. Second, we should desire to be a Scripture-honoring church. We believe this is the Word of God. This is God speaking. He still speaks. It's a fresh word from Him. And that when we proclaim the Word, God works through His Word to accomplish His purposes. And so we desire to be a Scripture-honoring church. Third, we should desire to be a disciple-making church. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, has commissioned us to make disciples. And so we are to invest our lives in others, not simply giving them the gospel, but our own lives because they become dear to us. Fourth, we should desire to be a missions-minded church. We have the privilege of telling others of the great things Christ has done for us. Delivering us from our bondage, setting us free so we can serve and honor Him. And we are to do this both locally and globally, for the glory of Christ must be spread to every place. Fifth, we should desire to be a serving church. A serving church. Though we are not saved by good works, we're saved by Christ alone, but yet we are saved for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we are to walk in. And every Christian has been gifted by Christ to carry out his work. And so we are to be a serving church. Related to that, we, we should desire to be a loving church, a loving church where we carry out Christ's command to love one another, prefer one another, encourage one another, build up one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, admonish one another, and so forth. We are to be a loving church community of believers. Seventh, we desire to be a worshiping church where we worship the Father in spirit and truth. And, and you, those two go together, don't they? As you understand truth, it affects your emotions and your mind and your will so that you sing from your heart to the Lord and you serve Him with your lives. Amen. True worship is always in spirit and in truth. Well, an eighth distinctive is that we should desire to be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. 
a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. The scripture is very clear. God does all things for his glory. He does everything for his glory. That, what that means is God does everything to reveal his fame so that we will see how awesome he is. God wants you to marvel at his majesty. He wants you to be in awe of his splendor, stunned by his greatness. Now, the way God has determined to manifest his glory is through his son, Jesus Christ. So the way we see the Father's majesty is through his son. So if we want to be a God-glorifying church, we must be a Christ-exalting church. Now, we're in Philippians, and so I want to show you a couple of passages where Paul emphasizes this. This is emphasized, by the way, all through Scripture, especially the New Testament. But I want you to notice a couple of passages right in Philippians where Paul emphasizes that the way we glorify the Father is through the Son. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul is saying that these people, the Philippians, were filled with the fruit of righteousness. And righteousness is simply having a right standing with God. He says that comes through Jesus Christ. It's because of what Christ has accomplished for us that we can stand before God justified. Well, that in turn, Paul says, is to the glory and praise of God. Of God the Father. So what Jesus has accomplished for us in justifying us redounds back to the glory of the Father. The Father is glorified and praised through the work of His Son. Now look at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when every tongue of every person confesses who Jesus Christ is, that he's Lord of all, this will be to the glory of God the Father. So it's through the Son that we see the Father's fame. So if we want to be a God-glorifying church, we must be a Christ-exalting church. And so what I want to do this morning is talk, look at how, how we can be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. How we can do this. We talk a lot in our church about being a Christ-exalting church. And Angelo's from our church, and so I know that Angelo talks about this a lot too. It becomes a buzzword, right? It's something you affirm. But we don't want to simply affirm these truths and assert these truths. We actually want to be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. So how can we do this? That's what we want to look at this morning. And what I'd like to do is simply look at the example of the Apostle Paul and see how Paul was this way. All right, so if you have, turn back to chapter 1. First, if we want to be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church, we must be passionate about proclaiming the gospel. We've got to be passionate about proclaiming the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul begins this letter with a prayer. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul here is thanking God, and he's overflowing with joy because of the Philippians' participation in the gospel, which he says they had participated in from the first day they heard of it. 
Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think he means they participated in sharing the blessing of the gospel with other people. And that just thrilled Paul, that they were participating in the gospel and telling others about the gospel. Look at verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Go down to verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You're starting to see a theme here, aren't you? All he talks about is the gospel. He's consumed about the progress of the gospel, even though he was in prison for preaching the gospel. Amen. It doesn't matter. He's just thrilled about the gospel. Look at verse 14. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. To speak the word of God is just another way of him saying, proclaiming the gospel. Look at verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. Preaching Christ. Another way of proclaiming the gospel. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You see, Paul's hard here, can't you? Paul is consumed with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rejoiced when Christ was proclaimed. He was thankful when others were participating in the gospel. Amen. And so I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, why was Paul so passionate about this? Why is he so passionate about the gospel and proclaiming the gospel? What is so significant about the gospel? Well, the gospel is what magnifies Jesus Christ. That's why he's so caught up into this. It magnifies the Lord Jesus. The gospel is simply a word that means good news. And the gospel is the good news that your sins, which will damn you in hell forever, can be forgiven. That's the good news. Amen. See, the Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because God is holy and righteous, he must judge our sins. Well, the gospel is the good news that your sins can be forgiven. I mean, there's no more greater news than this. Your sins can be forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. The reason why you can be reconciled and forgiven is because God has provided a way through His Son for you to be reconciled. The Father sent His Son into this world to die in your place so that you can be forgiven. But not just forgiven. You can be reconciled to God. You can be adopted into His family. So when you turn from your sin, the Bible calls that repentance, when you turn from your sin and you trust Christ alone, you find forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption and eternal life. So do you see why the gospel exalts the Lord Jesus? It's because He was willing to do this for sinners like you, for wretches like us. Isn't that amazing? So Paul never got over this. He wanted to preach this. 
And we have the privilege of telling others where they too can find forgiveness and eternal life. There's no greater news than this. Have you turned to Christ? Have you turned from your sin and received Christ? So you could do that today and find eternal life. This is glorious news. As a church, we, we, this is why we exist. It's to proclaim this good news. This is why we're here. And so we need to be like Paul. We need to be passionate about proclaiming the gospel. There's no greater news than this. Second, related to this, if we're going to be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church, we must live for Christ. We have to live for Christ. Now, if we understand what Jesus did for us, if we comprehend that he died in my place so that I could live, that when, when that gets a hold of you, what is your desire? You want to honor him. You want to live for him. Look at what Paul says here. Look at verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, I live so that Christ will be exalted in my body. That's why I live. So his whole life was centered around one agenda. His whole life. I want to see Jesus exalted. That's why I'm living here. So whether it's in his family, whether it's on your job, doesn't matter. That's how Paul would think. It doesn't matter where I'm at. I'm here to exalt Jesus. I'm here to live for Christ. Because why did, why did he want to live that way? He understood what Jesus had done for him. Oh, Christian, do you understand what Christ has done for you? Do you remember what he delivered you out of? I do. I remember the broken relationships because of my own sinfulness. The bondage to sin that was ruining my life. The pursuit of temporary things that would never satisfy. And then Christ came. He interrupted my life. And he delivered me from all of that. Do you remember that? See, if you remember that, you're like, I, I want to serve Jesus. See, you've got to preach to yourself these things, don't you, Christian? Because you could forget that. And, and you just forget the life that you were and the, the misery, the, the, the pit you were in. And he just drags you out of that and he rescues you. See, Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. That's what Paul would say. I was on the path of eternal destruction. And Christ interrupted my life and he forgave me all of my sins and he gave me eternal life. And then, and then on top of that, here's what's amazing. The Lord Jesus allows me to proclaim his name. Isn't that astounding, Christian, yes. that we get to do this? What an amazing privilege we have. So here's Paul's motto. You want to hear what Paul's motto is? Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's his motto. To me, to live is Christ. You want to have a, a, an abundant life? You want to have an exciting life? Then have that motto. To live is Christ. A life centered in Christ. That's really living. Everything else is death. I mean, what compares to living for Christ? Your career? The pursuing of temporary pleasures? I mean, if that's what you think, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing in Christ. There's nothing that compares to Him. 
And there's nothing more significant than telling others about the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing more significant than this. Because it's only in Jesus that you can have eternal life. So there's nothing more important and more satisfying than this. So we're to conduct ourselves, we're, we're to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. If we really believe and we've experienced what Christ has done, then we should be zealous for Christ. Isn't that what Paul says in Titus? We're, we're to be zealous for him. All out devotion for him. Loving him with all, everything that's in us. So that means putting off sin and living right. So Christ is exalted through us. To live is Christ. Third, if we're going to be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church, we must be united intent on one purpose. We have to be united intent on one purpose. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So here's Paul calling this church to unity. And he's telling the Philippians, listen, you need to be of the same mind. You need to maintain the same love. You need to be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, what is that? What are we to be united in? What is to be our one purpose as a church? Well, he tells us a few verses right before that. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear what he's saying? Our one purpose that we are to be intent on is exalting Christ. We're to be intent on this. That's our one purpose. And we do this, he says, by striving together for the faith of the gospel. Because it's through the gospel that Jesus is glorified. So we've got to be of the same mind about this. As a church, we gotta be, this has got to be our focus. And when he says one mind, he means you've got to think the same that this is the most important thing we do as a church. we got to maintain the same love. we got to love Christ. And here's what happens. When you love Christ and your affections are on Christ, what ends up happening is, is it overflows into love for one another. Can't help it. We must be united in spirit. Our affections must be on the same thing. We must be passionate about the glory of Christ, to live as Christ. And then we must be intent on one purpose. Literally, have our minds set on one thing. On Christ and His glory. On proclaiming Christ. Now that's what we're to be united in. That's our goal as a church. And every church should have this goal. This is what we're supposed to unite in. Getting out the gospel. Now let me just say this. The thing that will hinder and destroy this unity in glorifying Christ is selfishness. That's what will destroy this. It's selfishness. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. See what's going to destroy this? Selfishness, which is a desire to put yourself forward. It's a selfish person is someone who's self-seeking. They're self-promoting. They glory in themselves. Now, we, we're good at this. We do this different ways. 
One way we promote selfishness is to get other people to feel sorry for us. We have a pity party. You've probably thrown a few of these, right? We've all, we're good at this. You know, it sounds something like this. Woe is me. No one ever notices me. I'm forgotten. I'm invisible. Really? No one ever notices you. What about God? Does he notice you? I mean, that's the most important person. Does he notice you? Has he forgotten you? Does God know where you're at? Doesn't God include you in the most important thing that he's doing? So we got to get our focus off ourselves. God has allowed us to participate in the greatest work possible. Amen. Quit focusing on yourself. Start exalting the sun. See, we got to quit being selfish, and we got to start ministering to others. Help them grow in Christ or tell them about the glory of Christ. I think selfishness is seen another way when we, we start comparing ourselves to others. Man, I'm doing all this work, and they're doing nothing. I'm here working my tail off. I'm doing sitting up all the chairs here and doing all this stuff, and they're not doing anything. They need to carry their weight around here. See, that's another way selfishness creeps in, right? You start comparing yourself to others. Who are you doing this for? Right? Get your focus back on Christ. I'm doing this for Jesus. Another way selfish people are selfish is by having selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. They, they, they desire the limelight, the titles, the position, the power. They want to call the shots. They want to tell the people what to do. James warns about this. He says, where selfish ambition exists, there's disorder and every evil thing. Selfishness, according to James, is ugly and leads to much evil in the church. And when people are more interested in their own selfish ambitions and their own agenda and promoting themselves rather than glorying in Christ, you know what happens in a church? There's factions and splits and confusion and disorder. So if we're going to avoid those things, we've got to deny ourselves and live for Christ. Right? You've got to die to self. I'm here to promote Christ, not Phil. Right? That's what I'm here to do. Amen. The other thing that will destroy unity... Our unity and glory in Christ is what Paul calls here empty conceit. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This word literally means empty glory. Paul takes two words and combines them together, and he takes the word empty and glory. These are people who think so highly of themselves that they bestow glory on themselves. They boast in themselves and exalt themselves. Again, I would suggest that's probably a very common temptation, right? It's very common. We want other people to think well of us. We want them to think highly of us. And so what do we do? We let them know about ourselves. Hey, let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about my credentials, my accomplishments, my skills, my intellect. And we spend whole conversations talking about me. Aren't I awesome? <laughs> and you walk away going, no, not really. <laughs> right? I think another way vainglory is, is seen is when we believe we should be served. We believe we should be served. People exist to meet my needs. So we come into a church and we believe the church exists to serve me and my family. And then we evaluate the church by how well they're doing that or not. And we're critical when we don't think they're doing a very good job. 
So we, evalu we evaluate churches that way. Some people think, hey, my family exists to serve me, to do my laundry, fix my meals, pick up my messes. Thanks, honey. Appreciate you doing that. Right? I mean, that's how we think sometimes. My friends exist to serve me. And then we wonder why we don't have any friends. <laughs> See, it's all empty glory, isn't it? That's vanity. Can I just be brutally honest here? There is no substance in glorying in ourselves. We're supposed to glory in Christ. See, don't get people looking at you. Get them looking at Jesus. May I suggest that he's a lot more glorious? Get them looking at Christ. So how do we cure ourselves of this selfishness and seeking our own glory? Because we all struggle with this, right? Well, Paul gives the remedy. It's humility. Look at what he says. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we got to think rightly about ourselves. We got to think rightly. Who are we? You ever ask yourself that question? Who are we? We are sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. That's it. We're sinners saved by grace. Our identity is found in Christ. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. So our only boast is Christ. So instead of thinking highly of ourselves, we're to be humble. And you know what, how humility is seen? You prefer other people. You prefer others. It's considering them more important than yourselves. It's looking out for the interests of others, not simply our own. Do they know Christ? I mean, that's preferring others, right? Do they know Christ? If they do know Christ, are they growing in Christ? See, those are the most important questions. Not whether people take notice of me or not. That's not important. And, and by the way, when you start living this way and you start preferring others, you know what happens? People start thinking highly of you because they know you love them. Just being humble, loving. Now, this exhortation to selflessness and humility, it's grounded in the very character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's grounded in the very character of God revealed in Christ. So if we want to be a church that exalts Christ, that glorifies God, then lastly, we must follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul here is commanding his readers, and we're reading this, so that would be us as well. He's commanding us to have the attitude, have the mindset of Christ. What does he mean? Jesus exemplified what Paul is commanding you and I to do. So if you claim to be a follower of Christ, then you need to be like Christ. And what Paul's going to show is this. Jesus was of the same mind. He maintained the same love. He was united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarded one another as more important than himself. That was the attitude Jesus himself had. Amen. And Paul is calling us, follow his example. And so we want to unveil this a little bit more and see how Jesus displayed this attitude that we're to follow. 
So how do we see this? Well, the first thing we see about Jesus is this. Jesus did not use his position for his own advantage. He didn't use his position of who he was for his own advantage. Notice how Paul says this. Look at verse 6. Who, he's talking about Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, what Paul's doing here, he's magnifying who Jesus is so that to help us understand the greatness of what he did and the attitude that he had that we are to have. So how does he magnify Jesus? Who is Jesus, according to Paul? Well, according to this verse, he is fully God. Now, Paul could not have said this any clearer. He existed, he says, in the form of God. Now, that's contrasted in the next verse where Jesus took the form of a bondservant. Notice, he existed in one form. He took on another. So before Jesus ever became a man, he existed in the very form of God. So his very existence was that of God himself. So what that means then is that Jesus possesses in its fullness the very nature of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's who he is. In Colossians, Paul says, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's who Christ is. Now, since he is since Jesus is God and co-equal with the Father, then he's co-equal with the Father. And that's exactly what Paul highlights here. He says, notice verse 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word equality, equality here means exactly equal. The Son is exactly equal to the Father. Now we know Jesus is not the Father. He's a different person from the Father. The way he's equal to the Father is that he exists in the form of God. In other words, they both share in its fullness, along with the Holy Spirit, the exact same nature. So Jesus possesses in its fullness, then, all the attributes of God. That's who Jesus is. He is our God. That's why we worship him. Now think about this. As God, by definition... He can do whatever he pleases, right? That's who God is. He does whatever he pleases. But here's what's amazing about our God and what Paul's underscoring here. What pleased the Son of God was to exalt another. His delight was to humble himself and consider another is more important than himself. This is mind-boggling, isn't it? Paul's point is this. Even though the Son is all-glorious, He wasn't self-centered or self-seeking. Though He existed in the form of God, He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, the Son emptied Himself. In other words, Jesus did not regard His equality with God as something to be used for His own advantage. He refused to use for His own gain the glory He had from the beginning. In other words, Jesus wasn't concerned about promoting himself or promoting his own agenda. He didn't hold on to who he was. Instead, 
Jesus emptied himself. Now what Paul does here between verse 6 and 7 is set up a great contrast. You notice verse 7 begins with a but, right? He's, he's setting up this great contrast. He's explained in verse 6 who Jesus is. Fully God, co-equal with the Father. That means he's a person with all knowledge, all power, all glory, who can do whatever he pleases. But here's the contrast. Here's what's amazing. Instead of exalting in who he is, he chose for the sake of unity to love another, to prefer another, to honor another, to carry out his will. And so Jesus emptied himself. In the, in the original Greek text, it emphasizes that Jesus himself did this. No one forced him to do this. This is what he wanted to do. Because of his love for the Father and his desire to please the Father and do his will. Why? Because he's of the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Jesus willingly emptied himself. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus emptied himself? Well, it cannot mean that he emptied himself of being God. God cannot stop being God. Paul simply says that the Son emptied himself. So when Jesus did this, he didn't empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself. In other words, he poured himself out. And when he did this, he took on the form of a slave being found in the likeness of men. Paul here is emphasizing the incarnation. That God became a man. God became one of us. You know what? That should stun us. Do you know why it doesn't stun us? We think too highly of ourselves. Oh, God became one of us? Sure. Now, if you understand the infinite distance between us and God, you would go, God became one of us? Why would he do that? But that's what Paul's emphasizing here. God took on true humanity. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus veiled his glory. He veiled who he was. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. So people walking around talking with God didn't even know it. They didn't see his glory. Why? God didn't come to this earth to exalt himself. He came to empty himself. Now, we've got to remember something. Paul is using this whole thing as an illustration to help us, okay? He's already commanded us in verse 3 not to do anything from empty glory or empty conceit. Well, Paul uses the same word here in verse 7. Jesus emptied himself. So what Paul's emphasizing is that instead of attempting to get glory for ourselves, which would be empty or vain, we're to have the attitude of Christ. Christ, what did he do? He emptied himself, veiling his glory. Now, friends, that's astounding. Because unlike us, Jesus could not do anything from empty glory. Why? He's already all glorious. And yet, amazingly, he doesn't outwardly display his majesty when he becomes a man. I mean, that's amazing because he had the greatest glory. He has the most exalted reputation. And what does he do? He makes himself of no reputation. He comes to this earth not as Lord, even though he is Lord, but in the form of a slave. 
He comes to the earth he created, but no one knew who he was. I mean, if there was anyone who could have ever extolled their glory, it would have been Jesus. See, what a contrast between us and Christ. Right? What a contrast. Men who have no glory, we vainly try to get it. And Jesus, who has all glory, doesn't display it. What a contrast. And Paul's emphasis here is this. Follow his example. Follow his example. Instead of glorying in ourselves when we don't have any, glory in him. Quit trying to exalt and promote yourself when there's one that's so much more glorious to promote and exalt. Now, in becoming a man, Jesus did not exchange the form of God for that of a slave. Listen, instead, he displayed the form of God in the form of his life. That's what he did. He displayed the form of God in the form of a slave, clearly showing what his character was like and what it meant to be God. I mean, this is, this is mind-boggling stuff. I mean, think about a slave. A slave has no rights. A slave has no privileges. A slave solely exists to do the will of his master. That's what Jesus came to do. Wow. How can that be possible? <laughs> he came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. I mean, Jesus said stuff like this. I do nothing on my own initiative. That's mind-boggling. God would say that? He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Always. I, I, I come to do his will. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. That is complete self-renunciation. That is complete dying to self. So here we have God. And yet he came to serve God and do his bidding. He was self-giving for the glory of another. The son came to this earth to reveal the true God. And what was seen is not what one expected. Here's what we saw in Christ. Divine selflessness. Infinite humility. Preferring of another. Perfect love and unity. Having the same mind intent on one purpose, which was to glorify the Father. That's why he came. I'm here to glorify the Father. This is astounding, huh? This is the true God. See, this is why we glory in Christ. Do you see why we glory in Christ? There's no one like this person. And if we're to be Christ-like, we've got to have the same mindset. Right? We've got to empty ourselves, deny ourselves, and glory in another. We've got to promote Christ. Amen. And we've got to point people to Christ. Now, I want you to listen. Don't look at your Bibles. Okay, but I want you to listen what God did when he became a man. Listen to this. Being found in appearance as a man, he, he what? I mean, just put yourself in God's place for a moment. I know that's blasphemous, but just think that way for a second. If you were God and you came to this earth, what would you do? I mean, I could think of all kinds of things, right? Well, what did God do when he became a man? 
Look at what he says. Verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word humble here, it's the exact opposite of exaltation. It's the exact opposite word. I mean, one might have expected if God became a man, he would exalt himself. He would display his glory. Oh, let me tell you, that's what he's going to do when he comes a second time. Oh, it's going to be unveiled. Everyone will see him. But that's not what he did the first time. The son didn't come to make a name for himself. He came to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But not just any kind of death. A humiliating, violent, cursed death. Death on a cross. Now why would God do this? Why would the God of all glory, who was worshipped and adored in heaven, give all that up, empty himself, take on humanity, live in obscurity, and suffer a violent death at the hands of men he created. Why would he do that? Now some might say, well, he did this because of his love for sinners. And that would be a good answer. A correct answer. But that's not what Paul underscores here. That's not what Paul says. Paul says he did this because he became obedient. He became obedient so the reason Jesus ultimately did this was because someone else wanted him to do this. He's doing this for another. He's doing this in obedience to the Father. So instead of being selfish and doing his own thing, since he's God and can do whatever he wants, and instead of displaying his splendor, which he could do since he's all glorious, Jesus humbles himself, veils his glory, and he desired to do whatever the Father wanted him to do. Why? He's regarding the Father as more important than himself. He's doing this for the glory of the Father. He has the same mind as the Father, the same love. He's united in spirit. He's intent on one purpose, to glorify the Father. I said at the beginning, God does all things for his glory. So the Son delights more than anything else to glorify the Father, to carrying out his will. And the Father delights more than anything else to extol His Son. And so together they work in perfect unity. They maintain this incredible love for one another and carrying out their one purpose. And so because Jesus delights in the Father, He became obedient in carrying out His will. It was the Father who actually decreed to save a people and shower them with blessings through the accomplishments of his son. The father planned that. The father determined that. Look back at Ephesians 1 real briefly. Verse 3. Paul says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins this letter by praising specifically the Father. And he's going to praise the Father because of the Father's plan of redemption. Look at what he says. Who, that's the Father, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So the Father planned redemption and he planned to accomplish it through his Son. 
and blesses with every spiritual blessing. So what are those blessings? Look at verse 4. Just as he, that's the Father, the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, before the Father. In love he, that's the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, to the Father, according to the kind intention of his, the Father's will, to the praise of the glory of his, the Father's grace, which he, the Father, freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in Christ. So Paul is praising the Father because the Father planned all this, but he determined to accomplish it all through his Son. So that the Son would be glorified. Now what this emphasizes then. Go back to Philippians. Is that before the foundation of the world. The Son agreed to carry out the Father's plan. In eternity past he agreed to go to the cross. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was willing to be obedient to the point of death. Now why would Jesus agree to do this? Because he loves the glory in another. He loves to prefer the Father and exalt him. He's one with him. He's united in spirit, intent on one purpose, which is to glorify the Father by accomplishing his will. So when the Son becomes a man, guess what? He continued to do what he always loved to do. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because his death alone was the only thing that could accomplish our redemption. That was the only thing. His death alone was the only thing that could accomplish our forgiveness. Nothing else can. His death alone is the only thing that can reconcile us to God. His death alone was the only thing that would magnify the excellencies of God. I mean, what amazing love, huh? What astonishing obedience. What incredible humility. Jesus did all of this for the glory of the Father. Do you see why we desire to be a Christ-exalting church? How can we not be? That's right. Jesus is our example. We are, to, we are to have the same attitude. We are to maintain the same love. We are to be united and intent on one purpose, which is to exalt Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. The thrust of Paul's argument here in this passage, listen, the thrust of his argument in this passage is that this was Jesus' attitude before he ever became a man. This was his attitude as God. Though equal to the Father, and though sharing the exact same nature as the Father, it was his mindset not to take advantage of who he was, but to glory in the Father and do his will. So, friends, what that means is submission to another and preferring another and regarding another as more important than yourself doesn't affect our equality. It doesn't mean we're less of a person. Actually, to be humble and prefer another is to be godlike. So if our goal is to be a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church, and by the way, that's worked out in our relationships, isn't it? In, in, our, in the home and here in the church, we must learn to be like Jesus, right? Do nothing from selfishness. It's, do nothing from vainglory. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. I mean, what a testimony of the power of Christ to those who walk in this place. To, that's the kind of church you are. Wouldn't that be? What a testimony. Now, let me finish. 
by noticing how the father responds to the son for doing this. All right, how does the father respond to all this? Look at verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For this reason also. What reason? Because he was willing to humble himself, take the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For that reason, the Father highly exalted him. He gives him the highest honor, exalts him to the highest place. So it's clear to everyone there's no one greater than Jesus. There is no one. Now think about what Paul has shown us. Think about this. This is astounding. You've got to follow this. Jesus in full submission to the Father, though he's equal in nature to the Father, humbles himself to come into this world, humbles himself further to become a man and become obedient to the point of death. So he comes from infinite glory to infinite obscurity. The greatest of heights to the lowest possible depths. There was no one ever, there's no, been no one ever as humble as Christ. No one ever. He, he went to the lowest. His was infinite humility. And then from that lowest possible place, what's the father do? Exalts him to the highest possible place and bestows on him a name above every name. Now, I want you to listen to this. Listen carefully. What the Father gives the Son, the Son could have easily grasped. He could have easily done this himself. He could have easily made a name for himself. He could have easily exalted himself. He could have done all this on himself, on his own. Instead, what did he do? He prefers the Father. He humbles himself to obey and honor the Father. So that the Father is glorified. And so for doing that, the Father turns around and exalts the Son to the highest possible place. Now God is asking us to be like Christ. So that Jesus is exalted in our lives to the glory of the Father. When we are, we are to be humble, we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And in this way, we glorify Christ because that's not how this world operates, is it? The world doesn't operate this way. The world is about exalting yourself. It's about making yourself look good, and it doesn't matter if it, what happens to the person next to you when you step on them to do that. The world doesn't care. I mean, can you imagine a group of people who are so loving and caring that they're more concerned about others than themselves? I mean, what a testimony of the power of Christ. I mean, think of married couples if they live this way in their homes. What a testimony to their kids. And so Jesus here is given the name above every name. His name is so glorious, every knee will bow to him. And he means everyone, everybody in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Every, all creation will bow to him and give him homage. That's how highly exalted he is. There is no one greater than Christ. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, and they will give him allegiance, no exceptions. The name Lord here is equivalent to God himself. 
So though Jesus did not regard equality with, with God a thing to be grasped, and he empties himself and he humbles himself so that he appeared just as a man, someday all creation will recognize who he really is. He is God. And they will bow to him as their God. So the question, I guess, for us is this. Have you recognized that about Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't recognized it yet, you someday will bow to him. And it'll be too late. And so if you haven't bowed to Christ, bow to him now. He came to forgive you of your sins and give you life. That's why he came. But you've got to give him your allegiance. All right, bow to him now. I want you to notice how Paul finishes. He says in verse 11, This is all to the glory of God the Father. Amazingly, as the Father exalts the Son to the highest possible place, it's all to the Father's glory. This glorifies Him because He's the one who planned this. He's the one who purposed our redemption through His Son. So it glorifies Him that everything turns out exactly as He masterfully orchestrated. Amen. But it also glorifies Him because it displays the unity and the one purpose of the triune God. They work together in unity and love. They do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility, they regard one another as more important than themselves. And that's the whole point of this passage. God wants his people to be like him. This is how we extol him. And so, brothers and sisters, we're to be passionate about this gospel of proclaiming Jesus Christ. We are to live for Christ. We are to be united Intent on one purpose of exalting Christ. And we've got to follow the example of Christ. That's how we become a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. Amen? Amen? Wow. What a calling we have, huh? Following Christ's steps, which we can only do by His power. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice, Father at the work you're doing here. Oh, encourage your people here. May they be intent on this one purpose of exalting Christ. May they, be, may they forsake their selfish ways and humble themselves and, and glory in you and prefer others. And Lord, through all that, Lord, may, you, may the gospel prosper. May Christ be exalted. That's why we're here. So encourage your dear people. And Lord, and draw sinners to Christ in this place. May they hear this good news. And turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and have life and have it abundantly. Oh, Lord, do your work and be exalted, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.